So my name is Ember Kelly. I am the Director of Religious Education at the Fourth Universalist Society in the city of New York. And that is a, a mouthful every time I say it, but I, I still say it anyways. <laughs> um, and I'm so excited for our In Conversation event tonight. This In Conversation series uh, is a series where monthly we bring in a special guest to reflect on like a given theme for each month. Uh, we've had ones in the past about colonialism, or last month we had one about disconnecting from cell surface and building community. Uh, and so we've, we've had a variety of topics. This month was about holding history is our educational theme this month. Uh, and one of the things that I really wanted to do was to engage Unitarian Universalist history. Uh, but before we dive into introducing our guest, I do wanna go over our ground rules for how we uh, observe and respect each other in this space. Thanks for joining us for a fourth Universalist educational event. This is an educational space. While disagreement may happen, it is vital to practice respect. There might be slightly less disagreement when we are covering historical um, things, but we never know. Uh, it's important to practice respect. This is a liberatory space and we don't want to debate issues of oppression being real or not. We'll try and center voices from marginalized communities as best we are able. Uh, and to respect our time and keep discussion on topic uh, and to encourage a space where no voice is dominating discussion. Uh, at least for this first part, we're gonna ask that questions be sent in the chat box. Uh, we will have time for open questions towards the end, uh, but feel free to send questions during uh, the conversation in the chat box. Uh, and when we do have that time for open conversation to try and keep your uh, question concise so that we can have time for everybody to share. And so I am so excited to get to introduce tonight's guest. Uh, we've had some great chances already to get to sit down and nerd out together over church history. Uh, so I am particularly excited to get to explore this together tonight. And so our guest tonight is Reverend Emily de Tarbert, who is the minister at the Unitarian Church of Staten Island. Uh, and she is joining us tonight to cover uh, Unitarian and Universalist history from like the early 80s all the way to the present. So we are covering a big chunk of time, but I am excited for this. Reverend Emily, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you so much to everyone at Fourth Universalist for welcoming me and for Ember, for all that you do for Fourth Universalist, which is so much, and for opening a space to basically let me nerd out with all of you about our Unitarian Universalist history. I say nerd out because I started falling in love with this history as I was a Unitarian Universalist as a teenager. I actually wrote essays about UU history in high school and then later in college when I was studying for religious degrees. So I have a large passion for this. It has for me um, spoken to me and uh, is something I'm really passionate about. And that means I've been a UU all my life. Um, I'm actually on my dad's side, third generation Unitarian. And um, I have a very Unitarian versus family, meaning that my mom is Catholic, my dad is atheist, and my sister is um, Earth-centered tradition. So we have, but we both live into our Unitarian versus values as well as live into our UU family. And all of that gets brought into my ministry. I'm grateful to be with all of you today. So I am so excited to get to dive into this together. So let's start uh, from probably the earliest points where we see, uh, so the Unitarian and Universalist traditions, they come out of a more 
uh, originally come out of a primarily Christian uh, sort of background with some Jewish influence, but uh, in, when, in the time that they emerged, they, they often came from a bit more of the Christian uh, churches that were existing at the time. And really they, they have roots back to the, to the earliest times of Christianity from what I understand. Uh, Reverend Emily, would you like to maybe elaborate on a little bit of the, the earliest history that we know of, of Unitarianism and Universalism? Absolutely. Uh, though I know I'll be tag teaming you, Ember, because I know you've written papers and talked about this before. So I think you actually might be the expert in this case. But when it comes to the beliefs surrounding the original roots of Unitarian and Universalism, those ideas started as early as the Christian church itself. In fact, they were kind of understood as normal ways to interpret Christianity until the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Um, before, they had prominent speakers who believed in them. For example, Origen of Alexandria uh, believed that, especially at the last day of judgment, that everyone would be reconciled to God, the universal salvation of everyone, which is the root of universalism. And uh, Arius, uh, which is the person who gets the, the term Arianism, uh, was the anti-Trinitarian, did not believe that in the Trinity, did not believe that Jesus was God or the same as God, understood Jesus as human and God as divine. Um, is there anything else you want to add to that, Ember? Yeah, so I suppose it, it would be really good for us to lay down some like key terms of of what we would describe as what these... Unitarians and Universalists were at the time. So as you kind of mentioned there, Universalists were the folks that were saying that uh, everybody would get to go to heaven, that there wasn't necessarily a hell, or at the very least that there was like a very limited hell. I think Origen had some reincarnation thrown in there from what I understand and from what I've read. Uh, so you even had a little bit of that thrown in there. Uh, and you, you had so many different Christianities just kind of occupying the same space that had uh, Jesus as this figure, but who had very varying beliefs. And so Unitarians were one, you had Gnostics who held all sorts of, that one's way complicated, we'll hold that for another whole series. <laughs> but then you also had Trinitarians who would have believed that God was existing in Trinity. Also, that could probably be a whole entire discussion on its own on what exactly that means. Uh, and uh, but then you also had folks who would have believed that people would suffer eternal punishment. Uh, and to the opposite of that, there was folks who believed that everyone will get to go to heaven. So that would be the universalists. So you had Unitarians who didn't believe that in the Trinity and universalists who didn't uh, believe that anybody would be going to hell forever. And so these, while, while today we may have the UUA, these were... Uh, just kind of all intermixing. Everybody kind of had like a nice little mix. So you mentioned uh, Arius. And so uh, as the Roman Empire kind of took over Christianity, they said, hey, uh, we'd like this to be a little bit more consistent. Um, we can't have a lot of difference. That's not really the way we work in our empire. That's, uh, that's not how we're feeling. We, we want to have a nice consistent thing so that we can put the emperor nicely in the middle of it too, and <laughs> have a nice clear power structure. Uh, and they didn't like this idea of having all these different versions kind of floating around. And so they called a council of all of the bishops and Arius uh, was a bishop, I believe, or at least a very prominent church leader. 
at the time. And he got called to come to this and say, okay, defend what you believe and why that should be the best. And um, Santa was also there, St. Nicholas, uh, the origin of the Santa figure. He comes and gets in an argument with Arius uh, and punches him. Uh, so our, our good old Saint Nick, uh, good old Santa, uh, punched the one of the earliest Unitarians. Uh, so perhaps it is not a shocker that Unitarian Universalists have a strange relationship with Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and so this this is a whole big debate going on at the time. And there was also, um, you know, you mentioned that that the Council of Nicaea kind of shuts it down, uh, but there was even some that still kept existing afterwards. Uh, in particular, um, the person who I wrote the paper about that we, <laughs> that we got to discuss uh, was St. John of Damascus. Uh, and uh, he uh, believed that hell would not be an eternal punishment. And he clearly was respected enough if he got to become a saint according to the Catholic church and the Orthodox church. Uh, so this was a belief that while maybe not the main Orthodox belief at the time wasn't considered completely heretical uh, as well. So Unitarians and Universalists, they were, they were there mixing in and keeping around through all of the, the early forms of Christianity. Uh, but then we move into the Middle Ages. Do you wanna talk a little bit about um, where we go from there? So I'm not sure if this is the Middle Ages or a little bit later, but my goodness, did the Protestant Reformation change everything. <laughs> I mean, as as maybe we know, the Protestant Reformation really did change everything regarding religion and politics in Eastern and Western Europe. Um, after Martin Luther struck up his 95 theses against the church, and suddenly you have nation states that don't have to be Catholic, and they don't have to follow the Catholic Roman or Holy Roman Empire. Um, officials as the word princes and people who are in power in places can choose their religion suddenly you have territories that are um, Presbyterian territories that are Lutheran uh, that are following different people so this wide diversity of the interpretation of the scriptures happens at this explosion of the Protestant Reformation and that also includes Unitarianism the biggest real motivator or the person that starts this conversation against the trinity or def uh, defending against the trinity at that time is michael servetus uh who because martin luther started this trend of looking to the scriptures to ask wait there's nothing in the bible that says i have to follow the pope it says i need to form a relationship with god so Martin Luther creates his thesis based off his scriptural interpretation. Well, then a bunch of other people do the same. Calvin does as he reads the scripture and becomes a lawyer to argue for his interpretation of religion, which is Calvinism, which would become Presbyterianism. But so does Michael Servetus. And you know what Michael Servetus doesn't find in the scriptures? The Trinity. He looks and he looks and it's nowhere in there. And he ends up writing this very famous book illustrating, hey, I've gone through the scriptures and it does not tell me this trinity that you've created. In fact, one of my favorite phrases that I just found out today when I was doing research for this, this meeting from his, he, he claims that those who believe in the trinity are actually quote unquote atheists 
Because the minute they think of God, they are turned to three phantoms, three imaginary things made up by philosophers that don't make any sense. Only a real Christian would only believe in one God. <laughs> that didn't make people happy. <laughs> that ended up angering a lot of people. He, he ends up, he says even more words like this, that those who believe in the Trinity are blasphemous and that they have diverted or corrupted the message of Christianity. How anyone could understand that there is more than one God is, you know, et cetera, et cetera. While others at the time, especially Calvin, who was very, very much Trinitarian, uh, don't like that and argue with him. And, and he gets claimed a heretic by almost all of the other Protestant reformations, mainly in part because, wow, that is a turn of the Protestant Reformation we weren't expecting people to go all the way against the Trinity, but also because people in power who had decided to have Lutherans or Calvinists in their countries didn't want that much of a threat against the Catholic Church. They wanted to be respected in their power. They wanted to rebel, but just a little bit, in a safe way that's gonna guarantee they can hold on to their wealth and their power and their money. So they couldn't just think about this tradition that was gonna become, well, unchristian if they didn't believe in the Trinity. Therefore, Michael Servetus became a, well, became a heretic and was structured to basically burn to death. He ends up going in hiding, but he is, a. Uh, how do I put this? He can't let something go <laughs> because Calvin comes out with his new works and he, even though he's in hiding, he wants so badly to say something against Calvin that he writes Calvin a letter um, denouncing everything Calvin just wrote, revealing where he is, and he gets caught by the Spanish Inquisition, um, no, sorry, the French Inquisitors. He gets arrested and that's how he gets uh, burned to the stake as a heretic. Um, so. All of that happens in the Protestant Reformation, and that's the beginning spark of what ends up moving into Transylvania and Poland when we're establishing Unitarian churches. Uh, Unitarian churches ended up being established. One was actually called Unitarian Christianity in, in Transylvania. Um, or, and in Poland, it becomes the Minor Reformed Church of Poland and is named after a guy called Fracas um, Socian. Um, but both of them require, for Transylvania, what's interesting is that the king, uh, John Sigmund, unlike other kings in the area that chose a state religion, um, he decides to welcome free and tolerant debate across these denominations. And it's only because he opens himself up for free religious exploration that he's able to get preachers in his court, like Francis David, who's a Unitarian, to preach Unitarianism, and that's allowed to flourish and to grow in Transylvania, unlike in other places where it's deemed a heresy and therefore tried to be shut out and not established as a tradition, right? And in Poland, that wasn't recognized by the state of Poland, but it became such a big following uh, that it ended up literally being called the Minor Reformed Church. It was a minority church um, that followed along the same lines of Unitarian thought, um, not believing in the Trinity. Yeah, and since these uh, churches, since these organizations, since the religious beliefs were so tied with the way that the political power was also structured, 
these these heresies, especially um, both uh, Unitarianism and Universalism, since they're either calling into the validity the the very nature of God that the Europeans were thinking at the time, or whether people will be punished, um, calling into validity those things were, were huge shakeups to would, would challenge the political power too. Uh, that lots of these folks that were embracing these ideas were also embracing very radical social ideas about how to be structuring society and living together. And the heretics who had come before the Reformation had uh, run into many of the same issues. But now, like as, as you're saying, they, they even get turned on by the other reformers because the other reformers are like, well, we want these few things, but we don't want to change it too much. <laughs> and Unitarianism and Universalism were just still pushing it uh, a bit too far for folks. Um, and yes, I, I see in the chat um, about uh, where some people do draw. Um, I do come from a, a Trinitarian Christian background. Um, I'm perhaps more on the universalism side of Unitarian Universalism. Uh, and folks would often use like the story of Genesis and where that ours is said there uh, as a way to, to defend the Trinity. I would agree with that from the chat there. Um, but interestingly enough, uh, I uh, my first <laughs> master's degree uh, was from Calvin Seminary. Um, so given that Calvin played an essential role in one of the early uh, Unitarian Universalists uh, being burned at the stake. Um, it, it's quite uh, poetic that I ended up in Unitarian Universalism. Um, but so we do move from these, these movements, uh, and you mentioned Calvin and you mentioned uh, the Presbyterians, and eventually these folks say, hey, we, we want to freely practice, uh, and they, they uh, decide that maybe colonization might be the, the route for that. Um, would you like to talk a little bit about how Unitarians and Universalists got kind of involved in in moving over to the United States? Uh. Sure, absolutely. And Artie, yes, uh, people certainly, there are parallels in the Bible to say references. It's a little bit metaphorical, though. And back in the time, especially with these lawyers, they were incredible biblical literalists. They were trying to literally say which words literally said the Trinity exists, and that's how they use the evidence. The Bible does not literally say this, therefore it doesn't exist. Uh, however, I'm sure people have definitely interpreted that phrase and other phrases to uh, talk about the Trinity, including the spirit that falls in Pentecost, uh, Genesis, and others, as I'm sure Ember can tell more. All right. To, to your question about uh, our origins with Puritans in the United States. <sighs> The United States is a little bit of a different ballgame <laughs> because every country's history is different. And, and I think what's really, what I'm passionate about is that history and historical context bring meaning to when things happen. They shape how things happen. So the conversations happening in England around who's a heretic or not are very different than the conversations happening in Germany at the time, especially when we look at the 1700s, right? So, Yes, there are a lot of people fleeing to the United States under religious persecution from the Church of England uh, at the time of the 1700s, right? Uh, 16, it's more like the 1600s. Anyway, they're coming over, they're establishing churches, uh, and they're mostly, well, Calvinistic and Puritan in origin. Uh, they begin these churches and they become 
like models in England or other places, there really isn't a separation of church and state yet. That becomes a later notion that happens when we're, when we're fighting for independence, right? But when things begin, uh, government and church are pretty well related. Uh, so what does that mean? It means that people use religion as a political tool to help societies, towns, places form. And that really came through in Puritanism. Uh, even after independence was won, there was this, this connection. And you can see this if you go to Massachusetts or any other early colonies, there's just like, there's the church town. The church town is here and it may be Unitarian, it may be Congregationalist, maybe something else, but it's understood that there's this church that is the, the church of the town that helped have city meetings, town meetings that helped have government calls that government officials would be aligned to. That happened even after the independent, like the Declaration of Independence, there is this strong tie. And especially in the 1700s, people used the, well, if you don't act right, hell fire will fall up underneath your feet and you'll be swallowed into the depths of hell as a way to keep people in line, <laughs> as a way to help motivate how people worked and lived. Everything from, um, I mean, you know, it's most likely talked about in Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter, right? The dynamics of the town are largely shaped by understandings of religion, uh, and that has an implication when it comes to legal things, like the Salem witch trials and other things like that. Well, as that's happening, there are still movements of people who are wondering, is this right? This seems a little messed up. <laughs> uh, and it would especially come to head in the Great Awakening in the United States, where large preachers like Jonathan Edwards, who was a very dynamic and charismatic preacher that was known throughout the United States, would preach the sermon. And I'm quoting the title, A Sinner's in the Hands of an Angry God, <laughs> who literally described hell opening up beneath your feet, swallowing your whole unless you possibly did the right thing to go by God. Well, there were a bunch of universalists who said, that is poppycock. Why? Why if you say, if you say that God is all loving and that God is all just, why would you think that God would want to punish people? And why is punishment the motivator? Why is a motivator guilt and not love? And that's how we get John Murray and Hosea Ballou who argue for the universal love and therefore the universal salvation of God at the time, which might not seem radical in 2020, but was radical in the hands of a government and religious force that focused on hell, on punishment as the way that you were morally motivated, as the way that you did good things in society. Um, at the same time as that is happening, there's also this congregationalist movement that is beginning to read the scriptures, reinterpret the scriptures, and much like in movements we've seen before, when people have read them and were like, wait, does the Trinity exist? Can you read this and, and reason and, and see that maybe that doesn't make sense? That happened in the United States with congregationalist ministers who were prominent leaders in their towns across Boston. The biggest one that's well known is William Ellery Channing. And the term in the United States, the term Unitarianism, was a nickname that was given to us by a bunch of uh, Christian leaders or contemporaries of, of William Ellery Channing that tried to discredit him. They would say, oh, you're not Christian. 
you're not Christian at all. You're a Unitarian. You believe in one God, not in the Trinity. Well, he at first was reluctant about it and then decided to preach at someone's ordination about what Unitarian Christianity is. And that became kind of a formulaic first founding document of Unitarianism in the United States. How it's different than the past ones we've talked about is that William Ellery Channing at the time really focused on the human use of conscience and reason. He claimed, and this was the first time, I'm gonna say that hesitantly, of, of the people we've talked about who really claimed that God or the div divine gave us the faculty of reason, gave us the ability to think, to question. Therefore, we can't take the Bible literally. We have to interpret the scriptures with our reason. And if we do, doesn't really make sense that there's three people in one person. <laughs> uh, and therefore founded these principles of Unitarianism. How Unitarianism in the United States looks a little bit different too, as a reaction to, Puritan, uh, to the Puritan message, just like the Universalists are saying, no, humans are actually good and try to do good and, and God you know, wants to save humans, not punish us eternally. Um, Unitarians didn't, many of them believed in hell, many of them didn't, That's they didn't focus on the afterlife. But instead of Puritans saying, oh my gosh, hellfire is gonna eat you up. Unitarians said, we have this model, this prophet called Jesus who taught us how to live in ways that are good. We can build our own salvation by the good we do in this life. He coined it salvation by character but that we have a direct relationship between how we as human beings walk in the image of God uh, and how we do good on the earth and are, are valued. That it's, we're not irredeemable and only randomly assigned to punishment forever. We actively help save each other, save our world. Uh, and while I know that these terms right now are incredibly Christian centric, I think that you can already start seeing how these threads are continuing into non-Christian language we use today. So uh, one thing that, that came to my mind, I mean, there's a lot that came to my mind with all that. <laughs> I was about to pull out a piece of paper and start jotting down notes. Like, oh, there, there's know. so much information. I know we're going over a lot, everyone. Uh, but one thing that I've uh, heard talked about and seen in my own studies is that, uh, you know, we're, um, the, the Puritans and like the pilgrims are often held up as like the, oh, they just were looking for, for some, some religious freedom. But when in fact they were the kind of the religious fundamentalist of their days, like comparable to the, to the evangelical fundamentalist of, of modern day. Uh, and that, it was kind of like a, a move by Europe to be like, okay, we've had enough of them. We're gonna we're gonna send them, uh, we're gonna send them on their way because uh, we we don't want to have to deal with that here. We, we we prefer things, but America because you know in Europe you had these very strict national boundaries of like different religious beliefs because uh, so like any other movements would have to be kind of underground. Uh, but then in the United States, because you had like Maryland that was Catholic, you had a heavy amount of Episcopalians, you had these congregational churches, you had the Puritans and pilgrims, uh, that it, it enabled folks to, to have these ideas kind of interact and bounce off of each other in, in ways that they weren't necessarily having the chance to uh, over in Europe, where there was stricter uh, boundaries around, around these sort of movements. 
um, and and thus were able to then kind of birth whole new movements um, that that were that were unique. Um, yeah. So how do so we we're, we we're seeing this this break into American Unitarianism and Universalism, uh, and so we're probably what now in about the beginning of the eighteen hundreds. Yeah, and what I'd say is something shifts. Um, there's there's so many movements and so many things that are that are happening in the background, right? Uh, in the American uh, role of independence, which is the, the late 1700s, you have deism with figures like Benjamin Franklin, uh, Thomas Jefferson, and others uh, who are complicated figures with storied histories, but who also helped bring deism to the United States and fought for religious freedom here, uh, uh, at least in the ways that they were understanding it. Uh, that ended up continuing to advance universalism and Unitarianism. And then in the 1800s, again, it, we've always been a tradition that responds to the times, uh, that adapts and changes based on what's happening. Uh, that's why we call ourselves a living tr tradition, because we've always evolved, always evolved. Well, one of the ways we evolved is that uh, after this focus from William Other Channing on reason, 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 reason is the reason <laughs> why we're here and why we do religion together um, in the Unitarian Church of the 1700s. Well, if you focus a lot on reason, your sermons can get long and uh, things can seem dry and it can be a little intellectual. You know who didn't like that? Ralph Waldo Emerson. <laughs> there were people who in the late, uh, in the 1800s and into the mid to late 1800s um grew up unitarianism in unitarian churches and found it ridiculously cold just unfeeling dry and boring <laughs> there are people i'm sure who've had religious experiences who who may also feel like their childhood church might have been a little boring well uh definitely Ruffle emerson felt that way and wanted to focus away from reason, surrounded by and inspired by those who fell into romanticism and other movements uh, at the time, was like, what about feeling? What about religious feeling? What about spiritual intuition? What about spirituality? And that's where he falls into transcendentalism and has a whole transcendentalist movement that's happening in New England at the time from him, Henry David Thoreau, Margaret Fuller, and other illustrious names that Unitarian Universalists talk about all the time. But essentially, there's this move where not only is it no longer that we're, we're defining, um, so we started using our reason to define what we think about God, what we think about religion. Well, now he's expanding that notion to understand where do I find the feeling that's connected with the divine? I find it in nature. I find it out in the world. I find it in how I relate to the divine around me. And that starts opening up and expanding our understanding of religion and expanding our understanding of the divine as a whole. Uh, and he's not alone, right? All, all the other transcendentalists are, do something in a similar vein. Margaret Fuller, goes out and says, I finally understand, I see myself as part of the world and the world is part of me. Uh, the term transcendentalism, all just like its name, it's understanding that there's this transcendent nature of the divine or of the spirit that connects everybody to each other that you can kind of think about and fade away to. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson would use um, other cultures words for this, like the Indian and Hindu religion 
talking about Brahma, uh, the Oversoul, as a way to describe this. But all of this is both a new religious interpretation, but also a reaction against um, Unitarianism. What I find interesting is that the next generation after the Transcendentalists would react against that. <laughs> because coming to the 1900s or even the late 1800s comes this reaction against supernaturalism in the wake of science, in the, in the wake of world wars, and that's the growth of humanism. Humanism started reacting against very feeling uh, <laughs> supernatural transcendentalism and asking, I want religion that's based on what I can see and feel, on what I know here and now with my hands and created the humanist manifesto. All of this, all of this happened within our Unitarian and Universalist histories. So, so you're saying that, that constantly having these cultural battles <laughs> in, in religious spaces uh, is, is a repeating cycle that's been going on for quite some time. Oh yes, <laughs> it's, in our, it's in our Unitarian Universalist DNA. It's in our DNA. Yeah. Well, and you know, you mentioned like the whole, um, the, 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 the boring church. Uh, and, uh, but I didn't say it, Ralph Emerson did, I swear. <laughs> it's true, true. We mentioned Emerson saying boring church, but realistically, the sinners in the hands of an angry God sort of Christianity was also reaction in a similar movement happening in Christianity at the time that, that uh, John Edwards was saying, these people, they just, they just go to church and they, they leave and then they don't change and they don't act. And he's saying, well, I need to motivate them to, to act and to live this out. Um, he does it in a different way, obviously, than, than Unitarians, but um, it, it is something that that, that same sort of um, uh, movement had happened in, in, in traditional Christianity as well. I, I find that interesting, the similar patterns there. Um, and I, I think we, we talked about it a little bit as well, that there is, um, you know, almost kind of a connection that a lot of these these Puritans, these, these congregations that embraced congregationalism, that embraced being ruled as individual congregations, uh, either went on to become uh, very conservative Calvinist or Presbyterians, or and hyper-focused on like predestination and those kind of things, or they became Unitarians or Universalists because they, as they sat and thought on these things, they, they thought, okay, these are kind of the natural ways for us to head. Uh, and so these these really vibrant movements with so many different roots and interacting with so many um, so many different like aspects of life in America at the time just blossomed out of everywhere. And I know, um, like uh, as I've come to discover Unitarian Universalism, I found out about like the the frontier women preachers yep. and all of these like super interesting uh, movements that you know you had like the the more rigid, uh, perhaps, um, Unitarians on, on the East Coast, but then you had, like, the, the West Coast was known for being, like, the edgy and um, trying new things, and then you had, like, the frontier preachers. Yeah. There, there's so many different dynamics at, at play in this movement. Absolutely, there is. I, th I think it's important to understand, well, I guess, one of two things. One, what I love about the Transcendentalist Step is, again, because it opened up the Pandora's box of how to redefine uh, what God is or what spirituality is, that laid the foundation for humanism to emerge. Humanism would not have emerged if transcendentalism was not its forefather, right? 
Uh, and and throughout the history, you can see we've always had this room to expand, to welcome more diversity, to welcome more people in. This is not something that just happened in the last you know, 40 or 50 years since the merger. This has been happening since the beginning, all the way back to the transcendentalist uh, church uh, with John, the King John Sigmund, to how transcendentalism was reading other religious texts and interpreting them uh, to humanism and its forefront and how that opened up the doors for people of every stripe, atheists, agnostics, theists, into our midst. Um, and like you, you mentioned this, this like, oh yes, on the West Coast, kind of, kind of like the story of the Wild West, right? Frontier of you had this long-term um, history and standing communities in the East Coast of of Unitarian Universalist churches that had long legacies. Um, but in in the time when America was expanding to the Wild West, there was new frontier of places people could experiment, could do new and radical things. And that's where you have Thomas Starr King going. And that's where you have these frontier Unitarian women ministers happening in Iowa. That's like, that's where you see these movements. And eventually towards the end of the 1800s, right at the turn of the century, there ended up being this fight in Unitarianism about whether or not the West Coast was gonna become its own denomination and the East Coast be its own American Unitarian Association. And the fight was because uh, Unitarian Christian, more, what would I say more Christian churches, those who still served communion, those who still um, read uh, the Lord's Prayer, other things like that, that were happening on the East Coast at the time, knew that West Coast churches didn't use the word God or didn't really follow the Bible or had people who were atheists and openly atheist and agnostic. And they said, how can we be in the same faith? I don't understand that. But, but William Channing Gannett in 1897 wrote 10 things commonly believed among us. It reads almost like the principles. And it's a document that that is able to marry these differences together. And I just I just love it when I read it because um, I'm gonna actually, you know what, I'm gonna pull it out from this book that I adore and read a small section of it. It says things like, we honor the Bible and all inspiring scripture, old and new. We revere Jesus and all holy souls that have taught people truth, righteousness, and love as the prophets of religion. This was written in 1897. This is pretty radical for the time, but you see how it's, it's merging and holding the space for both the old tradition and the new. Uh, and that's what I love. We've been this place that has, we have theological stakes. We have values that we believe in, the inherent worth and dignity of every person that comes from our universalist past, right? We have stakes about what it means to be human, what it means to understand the divine, but we also have this space for diversity and it's been in our DNA and our bones since the beginning. And I love that. I love talking about that. And so we, we've time traveled uh, 1900 years already. Um, I know. So we, we, we've covered a bit here. So as we get into uh, our, our most recent um, century um, from prior to this one. Uh, what is going on? So by, by this time, I don't, I don't know, did the Unitarian Church of Staten Island exist by 1900? I know Fourth did. 
We were founded in 1852. Yes. Uh, basically, someone uh, who went to Boston and heard um, Parker speak about transcendentalism was so inspired that they came to uh, Staten Island. They, well, they lived in Staten Island. They were trans, uh, transplants from Boston to Staten Island. And they're big name families, the Shaws and the Curtises, who I'm sure Staten Islanders can talk their ears off about because they did a lot of big things in Staten Island. They're the ones who wanted to start this transcendentalist church called at the time Church of the Redeemer and got it started in 1852. And since then, my church has, like other churches, and you'll see our communities have gone through these changes of, of differences and, and, and evolutions, right? We started as a transcendentalist community talking to call the Church of the Redeemer, talking about, you know, Christianity and Jesus. But throughout the 19, say the 1930s until later, if I know my Congregation's history, which I might need to double check that. We were a very humanist church, and I believe we still in many ways are. Though we now, in our orientation now, have people who are Jewish and Muslim and Christian and agnostic and a diverse group of people who are talking about religious language. I'm able to say the word blessing in my church. I'm able to say the word church or worship. And we're able to unpack that and talk about that across different beliefs. Um, so we, we have a evolution like other individual congregations do and like our movement does as well. I think the last thing I'll say as we as we go into the 20th century and into who we are now, right? Some people are like, so how did we merge? How, how did these two denominations merge? And, and for some, remember, universalists were mostly Trinitarian. Um, but I love the quote that's misquoted from Star King that I'm probably going to misquote. I don't even know if it's a real quote or not at this point. But basically, it's alleged that Thomas Starr King said, uh, Unitarians believe that people are too good to be condemned, and Universalists believe that God is too good to condemn people. So they're actually pretty, pretty nicely fit together um, of a generous interpretation, both of, of the divine and of the human spirit. And as the Universalist church also evolved, it evolved not only from taking a stance about, you know, human beings have worth and good, but universalism involved to be like, well, if we believe that all people are saved, doesn't it mean people of different faiths? And what does that mean? If we believe that all people are saved, what does that mean about other traditions and the truth that they could be telling us about the nature of God? That's how universalism expanded its view and became this place that welcomed so many people. That's how universalists got into the social gospel movement got in, into the movement of how do we do the values we live in into the world today. So when you're getting into the 60s, you have the Unitarian denomination that's mostly humanist. It's focused on human beings doing social justice in the world and how we continually expand or welcome people, uh, different perspectives into our congregations. And you have an ever-expanding universalism that's wondering about how to do justice in the world. We ended up being pretty nicely mirrored with each other and having a nice relationship and that relationship was formed before we became an association it was the youth who went together and created the liberal liberal religious youth i think um lry yeah liberal religious youth which was an organization that brought together these denominations young adults they decided to get together before the uua was even founded so we've had this relationship and that's how we became the association we were in the 60s and since the 60s we have kept evolving we've kept we've 
opened up our religious language. We've opened up our sources to understand that we are inspired by Earth-centered traditions, by traditions that aren't necessarily of our own specific historical heritage, but who have influences on our faith and who have value and meaning that we should learn from within our traditions. We've grown into movements that have to um, look at the truth of of our I've seen I've seen this this thing culturally that's happened in UU spaces growing up UU we had a lot of world religions we learned about everything and we're like oh we can pick and choose from other religions well now we're in 2021 understanding that while we can find faith and spiritual value from learning from other traditions there's also cultural appropriation and religious appropriation that we need to be mindful of and how do we balance that? Those conversations are happening in the last 20 years in a way that didn't really happen in the 80s or in the 70s, right? Um, so you'll see that we're impacted by all of these things. Finally, we're also impacted by theologies, right? Meaning that in the 70s, a blossoming of theologies happened everywhere. Environmental theology. How do we treat the earth and the world around us? Uh, liberation theologies. Uh, how do we understand uh, our tradition and our, histor our history as one that calls us to justice and liberation of people. Um, all of those things impact Unitarian Universalism today. And we're continuing to evolve into who knows what we're gonna be next. We make that up, we decide that together because we've always been growing and evolving and we're going to keep evolving. And that is one of the things I love about this faith. Well, your your version of that that quote uh, <laughs> is nicer than the one I've heard, which is that uh, what what is it that Unitarians believe they're too good for God, and <laughs> Universalists believe that God is too good for them. Um, so your yours sounds a little bit nicer. So we'll, we'll go with that one. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Again, we have a lot of misquoted speakers in our tradition. I wish that I had historical like I could. We don't have as much historical record. We have some. We, we do have a lot of different historical records, but I don't know every word Thomas Stark King spoke, so I don't know exactly what he said. So before we open up for some, some community questions here, so get them prepared, um, either in the chat or you can raise your hand and we'll call on you once we finish this one. Uh, but so Fourth Universalist, uh, we just voted this last summer to uh, endorse, to add whatever the official word is, the eighth principle to, to our Principles, could you talk a little bit about uh, this idea of principles and sources as kind of what binds us together and how that's developed and changed? Yeah, um, one, congratulations. That's fantastic. I know that our congregations had lots of conversations, but hasn't formalized having that vote. I'm looking forward to um, that being a possibility in the future. Um, I know that with the principles, they were written uh, and approved in 1985. And they came after the merger. The merger had a kind of joint statement from Unitarians and Universalists that had words like to the love of God and to the love of man and, and other things. Well, in the 70s, with the rise of feminism, a lot of women were like, that doesn't really include us. Uh, that's not the greatest. And also because there ended up being such an expanding notion about God, it didn't seem to really fit. It just didn't really fit anymore. It felt a little awkward. And at the time of 1985, that was the rise of the religious right in America. 
in the reign of Ronald Reagan and who would come after him, that's when the Republican Party really tried to motivate uh, evangelical voices to start getting political. And while the Unitarian Church and other other liberal Christian denominations or liberal faiths, um, we didn't really have a creed to say, that's wrong. <laughs> what you're doing is wrong. <laughs> we didn't have something to just go to to explain to explain who we were as Unitarian Universalists, but also to to really talk about how how do we combat that? Uh, so that's one of the ways the principles was born by actually the Women's Federation, the Unitarian Universalist Women's Federation, who helped draft both the principles and the sources together. Uh, and the sources were expansive, right? They recognized humanism, they recognized spiritual traditions, they recognized or centered in indigenous traditions, they recognized our uh, language at the time was Judeo-Christian heritage, uh, and also created these principles. And when you look at the principles, while it's removed from the language of, you know, Michael Cervantes, <laughs> these actually have roots in our past theologies. The inherent worth and dignity of all people, that is both the Unitarian good character, or character salvation by character, and the Universalist, all people are worthy of being saved. That's what's held in that statement. And if you go through statement by statement, justice and equity in all people, that's our social justice theology, right? Um, the acceptance of one another and spiritual growth, the use of conscience, that's the primary use of reason. These are actual values from our theologies that are informing these principles. And the same I would say is true of the eighth principles, right? Our congregations, our theologies, both universalism and Unitarianism have been motivated to do justice specifically regarding anti-oppression and anti-racism since ever, especially in the 20th century, especially if we think about leaders, he was not Unitarian, but Unitarians followed him, Howard Thurman, or others, Clarence Skinner, Clarence Skinner, our universalist uh, social gospeler, right? People who understood that our faith needed to be lived out in the world. We have those theologies. And especially now that we have been impacted and have people inside of our tradition writing liberation theology, as well as us responding to um, things like Dr. James Cone and black liberation theology, we already have in our values a call to build a beloved community and um, you know, to be anti-racist and anti-oppressive. So the eighth principle is yet just another evolution of adding a principle to affirm the beliefs we already carry and they might change in the future. Who knows what the next generation is gonna need to tack on or, or take off or, or address or if the principles aren't gonna fit in the future. And I'm excited to see what it's gonna become. Because that's, I love the fact that our faith never stops moving. I want to make a quick plug that we are going to have uh, next month in conversation, coincidentally is with a black and queer uh, liberation theology inspired friend of mine from seminary. Uh, so I'll make a quick plug for that. That's gonna be December 14th. Watch all of the Fourth Universalist ads for that. I'm going to go ahead and end our recording to anybody watching this in the future on YouTube or by podcast. Thanks for joining us there.